welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, this is the third and final episode in our first ever series about the intersection of crime, finance, and markets. Are you are you sad or excited for the finale? Uh, I'm really excited about this one. Um, I mean, I, I really, you know, I think a general theme of all of our episodes has been the markets that where markets appear that people don't talk about very much, but these mm-hmm. crime ones have been really in the sweet spot. And I think uh, today's is going to be a really good one. All right. So one of the reasons that you and I find these sort of crime markets so interesting is that they often deal with really entrenched problems in economics. They're honestly some of the most difficult markets in the world. And I think the one that we are going to talk about today is probably the most problematic in all of existence, like every single big economic problem you can think of, stuff like moral hazard, adverse selection, information asymmetry, all of that is present in this market. And if you get it wrong, someone might die. So there's an an, an added bit of drama here. Right. The consequences of this market that we're going to talk about are enormous, because as you mentioned, if the market doesn't work right, it could result in death. And on top of all the things that you mentioned, adverse selection, moral hazard, information asymmetry, there's also uh, deep issues of emotion and morality. And, you know, economists sometimes like to abstract those things away and sort of assume that they don't exist. But we're going to be talking about a market where it's essentially impossible to wipe those things away, which has the benefit of sort of informing our understanding of all markets by forcing us to confront those things. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the more amazing things about this particular market is that there's actually a pretty decent solution to these problems. A corporate entity has actually come up with a good way of dealing with these problems, and it seems to be working out reasonably well. Um, I guess we should uh, we should go ahead and say we should what stop it tiptoeing. Is. Yeah, I know. Stop tiptoeing. Why don't you uh, say what it is and uh, introduce our guest? All right, we are going to be talking about the kidnapping market, how insurers actually insure kidnapping risk, uh, how the whole process of ransom actually unfolds. So here with us today to discuss the kidnapping market is a woman called Anya Shortland. Uh, She has written a fantastic paper on this very subject called Governing Kidnap for Ransom, Lloyd's as a Private Regime. She is also a reader in political economy at King's College London. So without further ado, Anya, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for bringing me onto the program. So uh, did Joe and I get that introduction right? Is it fair to say that kidnapping or the kidnapping market is probably one of the most difficult markets around? Well, I certainly think of it as the trickiest trade in the world. So each individual trade is absolutely fraught with difficulty. I think this is a, we have the title to this episode, The Trickiest Trade in the World. Mm. Thank you very much for that. That that solves that problem. (laughs) Why is it? Why why, why do you consider this the trickiest trade in the world? Well, it has, it starts off with a random pairing of transaction partners. You don't get any choice about who you're going to be trading with. Um, Usually a kidnap 
is a black box event. Somebody hijacks a car or a boat and out jump some hostages. So you don't know anything about the people that you're going to be transacting with. And then you have to do a one-off transaction with them. The problem with that transaction and the incomplete information is that nobody knows what kind of price should be paid. So the people who have kidnapped a person don't know how rich or poor that person is. They might have a guess. However, for the hostage stakeholders, the question is not necessarily how much can I raise, but how much will the kidnapper settle for? So you have that a bargaining problem with incomplete information. Unfortunately, information can be extracted uh, through the strategic use of violence. You can't stop the kidnappers from chopping off digits or at least threatening to do so. Um, you might use extreme violence if you think you've got a hostage that isn't worth very much and therefore raise the price of other hostages. Eventually, perhaps, you agree a price. And then you have to actually conduct the trade. Yeah? So getting to a price is difficult. Then you have sequential exchange. Somebody's got to pay, and then the hostage has to come back. And any sequential trade is problematic. This one is particularly problematic because it's clandestine and it can be intercepted. So you don't actually know whether you've managed to pay because if you put some money somewhere in a bin, according to the kidnapper's instructions, somebody else could empty that bin before the kidnappers get to it. So you can't actually prove that you've paid. And then once you have paid and they have acknowledged that you have paid, then they still have to decide whether they want to release a future potential witness. And when you look at it like that, you think, well, this can't possibly go well. And then the amazing statistic is that if you're insured for this kind of thing, then it will go right 98% of the time. That was a remarkable summary of the problem, and uh, I just found listening to that uh, riveting. And I, we're going to talk about this phenomenon where private companies provide insurance for executives and other people who are prone to kidnapping. But before we dive into the structure of the market, uh, something that I'm particularly fascinated by, and this came up on a previous episode, is... How do you collect data on this? I mean, this is sort of one of the fascinating aspects of uh, criminal markets. It's not exactly you know, listed in the newspaper or on the Bloomberg terminal what the going rate is for a kidnapping victim. Ooh, that'd be a good index, Joe. That would be a great index. That would be a great chart of the day to do sometime if we had that. But how does the process of data collection work? in a market where nobody has any incentive to tell you anything? Well, that's exactly the difficulty um, of my research. In the end, it's about people trusting you to not divulge the information that you get. But uh, that information is being collected. And uh, there are people who share it within the community. Because one of the really important things, if you want to govern that market and make that market uh, stable is that you don't pay over the odds. Yeah? So you need to have information about how much a kidnapper gang is actually expecting. Yes, they will ask you for $10 million, but what you need to know is whether they 
actually settle for $7,000 or $12,000 or $100,000. Yeah, the, 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 the initial um, opening gambit gives you very little guidance as to what they'll actually settle for. So yes, people collect that information and they share it within the community um, of experts to make sure that the hostage stakeholders pitch their opening gambit in expectations of settling, in the expectation of settling at a reasonable price for that region and for that particular kidnap group. Anya, let's get back to that amazing success rate that you mentioned. Um, I think it was 98% if you're insured for kidnapping. How exactly is that success achieved by private corporations given all the really, really deep, uh, dramatic problems that you described previously? Well, to an economist, any trade becomes governable if there is a shadow of the future. Yeah? The, the key problem that I had straight away was this, it's a one-off transaction if you have a shadow of the future, if the kidnapper knows that they're going to do this again and again and again, and that whatever they do will feed into a community that knows what they've done in the past, then you have the potential for reputation building. Yeah? So this will only ever work if people can build reputations. You talk about the corporation that's behind this and the specialists that are behind it. Um, the problem with reputation building in criminal markets are twofold. The victims don't talk yeah, because the last thing you want to do is when you've just been through a kidnap is go to the newspaper and say, oh, I just paid half a million for my husband. <laughs> um, that's going to be that's going to attract attention and the wrong kind of criminal attention in the future. So people don't want to talk about it. They might talk about it within a small community, and that's how local kidnap markets work. But similarly, uh, a kidnapper would have to feel very self-assured to try and build a reputation. Yeah? So you need to have a very discreet process of exchanging information to replace the rate my kidnapper app right. <laughs> that <laughs> we usually use nowadays uh, to, to, to try and pool information about whether a trade partner is actually reliable. But if you have somebody who regularly blows the victim's brains out, takes a ransom and then doesn't even return the body, then you want to send the police in and not the guy with the ransom. So. If a would-be kidnapper had the reputation of always blowing the victim's brains out no matter what, it's pretty clear that they would not, people would not be uh, you know, willing to negotiate with them much, that they wouldn't be very successful long-term in the trade. But do people actually get to know individual kidnappers? Do they know the identity of the counterparty? Or do they just get to know the uh, general patterns of kidnappers, say, in a given area? Do the individuals have the reputation or does the community of kidnappers get the reputation? I think it's a bit of both. Occasionally you have kidnapping gangs and sometimes you have this advertising thing like the Mexican flower gang uh, that always sent the chauffeur's body back with a flower. Um, oh. So 
Yes. <laughs> so it does it does happen, um, but generally you kind of know who's active in, in, mm. in the area and you know the expectations because once you get one ransom paid um, in an area that will feed through the criminal community and then other people think, oh, well, I can do that. So their trade then will be conditioned on the previous ransom. Now, does the community enforce norms? So you talk about the idea of a kidnapping community. If there is a bad actor do other kidnappers discourage that? I think quite possibly you'd have a local mafia that would say, well, we don't want this kind of kidnapping here. Yeah, so I do think there is discipline. There is there's a lot of research on, 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 on who governs the criminal side of the market. And the answer is usually that there, there is a don, there is a mafia, and the mafia decides whether or not kidnapping happens, and if it does happen, what kind of things are acceptable. Uh, because if you're maximizing return over over a long period, then again, you don't want that kind of kidnapper um, on your right. turf. So they're, 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 they might well get rid of uh, the more random elements. I'm sure it's only a matter of time until some really enterprising criminal comes up with a central clearinghouse for kidnappers to eliminate all counterparty risk. Um, but on, yeah, on a more serious note, there is a sort of thematic tension that emerges from your work, which is that these kidnapping insurers, if they're too successful, then they basically risk encouraging a lot more kidnappings and um, having to pay out a lot more money. So how do they actually navigate that tension? Yeah, so when Kidnap for Ransom Insurance was first developed as a product, the families negotiated, the families raised the ransoms, the families um, delivered the ransoms, and then the insurers reimbursed, uh, reimbursed them afterwards. The problem with that was that the families weren't particularly careful about how, many, how much ransom they paid. Uh, they didn't resist the uh, kidnappers' demands as much as would have been uh, desirable. And ransom started to explode. So in the 1970s in Latin America, um, ransoms went from, from half a million to a million to two million to six million to 10 million to 30 million to 60 million. And it would have become uninsurable if insurers hadn't done something about taking control of the ransom negotiations. So what they did was uh, to bring in specialists to advise the families to make sure that they started to consider how much the kidnapper would settle for rather than the maximum amount of money that they might like to afford um, to bring a treasured uncle back. Now, here's a question. Whose interest do the specialists, uh, who do they work for? They work for the insurance company, right? They work for the insurance company. They advise the family and their job is to bring the hostage back safely for the minimum that the kidnappers will settle for. So basically they work for both sides because the family is interested in the safe return and they work for the insurers because the insurers are interested um, in a stable market. They don't want premium ransoms to be paid. Because in theory, this could be yet another information asymmetry where there are, again, two parties 
the stakeholders, the family of the kidnapping victim, and the insurance company, and you know, the and uh, you know, the, the 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 specialist essentially serves two masters, and there could be potentially a conflict of interest there. There's certainly in many cases perceived to be one. I doubt that it is very great um, because the chances are that if somebody asks you for a million and you say, yeah, that's fine, the kidnappers will go back and say, well, if, if a million is fine, you're just happy to give it to me like that, then I would like five million. Yeah, so you don't actually gain very much ah. by giving in fast. Yeah, so as far as the kidnapper is concerned, they're trying to extract the maximum that you've got. And if they if they name a figure beyond their dreams of avarice and you say, yeah, that's fine, that's not going to work because there is nothing right. contractual that obliges the kidnappers to stick with a figure that they originally had in mind. Um, it is all anarchic bargaining. Um, sometimes the kidnappers will give somebody back if you... If, if the family uh, exceeds very quickly. And then two weeks later, another family member will be gone. So basically, it is not really something where you can take shortcuts. And the fact that you've got a highly experienced negotiator at your side who can explain the process mm. to you, who can reassure you, and who you know has already brought dozens of people back, and it will take five days and $10,000 rather than three hours and a million. If you know, if you have that background that, that they know what they're doing, then you probably ought to listen. So we've been talking about these insurance companies able to instill some discipline in the bargaining, ransoming process and create this very, very healthy success rate. But there's a part of this that we haven't actually talked about yet, which is that in all of the kidnappings we've been discussing, we're talking about criminal gangs, mafia groups doing kidnappings for profit. These insurance companies like Lloyd's are actually prohibited from negotiating or insuring if someone gets kidnapped from a terrorist group. Is that right? That is right, yes. It's, uh, it's illegal uh, to facilitate or make or reimburse payments where you have any reasonable cause to suspect it might go to a terrorist group. So, yes, the insurers are out as soon as somebody labels a group terrorist. So who makes that decision and why is that rule in place? This is about governments wanting to be tough on terrorist funding. And governments decide which groups they consider to be terrorists. And there is some leeway on this. So, for example, with the Somali pirates, there was a lot of suspicion that al-Shabaab might be getting some of the pirate proceeds. Um, and yet the criminal label uh, was applied because basically once you start labeling something as a terrorist problem, then that beautiful, ingenious market structure that governs criminal kidnaps is sidelined and things start to go badly wrong. In your view, is, the, is this an error of policy? 
there are all sorts of problems when you put a government on the end of a phone line. Um, the insurer will put the family or whatever stakeholder groups is uh, most credibly cash constrained on the end of the phone. So if I was kidnapped, they would put my husband on the phone. And however much my husband loves me, there's no way he could raise half a million. If you put Angela Merkel on the phone, there is no way that she can credibly uh, signal to the, um, to the kidnapper that the German state does not have five million <laughs> to bring me back. That is a big difference. Yeah? So what is the budget constraint? What budget constraint can you actually demonstrate to the kidnapper? Um, secondly, why my husband would very much like me back, there's not pressure to do so immediately. Uh, whereas governments are generally quite keen to conclude and get this thing off their plate, especially if you have kidnappers uh, who, who, who create media pressure for the return of our boys or our girls or whatever it is. And thirdly, insurers have devised a system to make sure that the spillovers uh, from premium ransoms are internalized within the community of insurers, whereas the German government doesn't really care and can't be punished for creating a premium ransom precedent that then becomes problematic for the French government or the Italian government or the Spanish government five months down the line. So all the things that contain ransoms within the private sphere are missing in the government sphere. So when it comes to terrorist kidnappings, there is one trend that has been happening that I really wanted to ask you about, and that's... Um, you know, we've seen people unable to get their governments to pay for their loved ones for the reasons that you just uh, laid out. And then they don't have insurance for their loved ones because the insurers aren't allowed to pay out ransoms for terrorist kidnappings. But some of these families have been going online and doing crowdfunding, right? Basically asking people for money to pay for ransoms. How does that affect the insurance market? Because I imagine that that could create some distortions in incentives. Certainly, it would knock that discipline that we've been talking about. I haven't seen much about the crowdfunding, but what I have seen, of course, is the ransoms that uh, certain European countries have quite regularly paid to terrorists. And that really creates a problem uh, for insurers um, because you talked about clearing houses earlier on. Are there clearing houses? Well, there certainly is a secondary market for hostages. So if you have a criminal market that settles at thirty or fifty thousand dollars and a terrorist market that settles somewhere between five and twelve million, then it becomes very likely that the criminal kidnappers pass the hostages on to the terrorist organizations. We have to wrap up soon, but I want to ask you, you know, kidnapping is a pretty common theme in movies. There, I think was there, there was a movie called Ransom, I think, or with Harrison Ford, 
What is the biggest gap between how most people view the uh, negotiating process with hostage takers or sorry, with kidnappers and how it exists in real life? What's the what's the ultimate way that this process by which a number is agreed upon and the delivery of the money happens? How does uh, how do people get it wrong? Because most of their experiences through uh, through fiction, I think the big difference is that once that negotiator arrives to advise the family, he will have a very good idea of how long it will take and how much it'll settle for. So yes, it will be emotionally highly fraught, but in the background, you know that this is very likely to be done in less than a week and at a price that's not actually going to break the bank. And 98% of people come home. Yes, hostages die, but most of them die in escape attempts or because they had pre-existing medical conditions or because somebody tries to liberate them. Those are the three real big dangers for hostages. That's a... that's good to know. Well, I don't know. That's I mean that's just sort of good advice in case that you know I ever find we ever find ourselves in that position. But that that's the exactly the advice way. that you would be getting if you were trained for operations in complex and hostile territories and that's what uh, what everyone advises you hang in there. Don't be an alpha male. We'll mm. get you out. <laughs> uh, Eddie Lampert the hedge fund manager did negotiate his own or did sneak out. Have you studied his case? No, I haven't. Oh. The uh, the hedge fund manager who currently controls Sears was kidnapped in 2003 and managed to trick his kidnappers into thinking the police were hot on their tail through negotiation. of He, he did it himself and then was able to sneak out. I have one tiny last little question. I'm sorry. Very minor. Are there any escrow services for money drops? Well, yes, there is. <laughs> Trying to make that payment process smooth is another big business. Uh, and trying to find ways of actually proving that you have paid. So I think one of the really nice uh, illustrations of that um, where the ransom drops for Somali pirates, where they're basically flying over with aircraft, um, the pirates lined up the entire crew to show that everyone was still alive. And then on the second fly path, the money was dropped, photos were taken. So it was very clear that the pirates mm. had been paid and yeah, I mean, all of these uh, releases went absolutely smoothly. Anya Shortland, uh, that was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. So, Joe, now we know what to do if we're kidnapped, right? Don't be an alpha male. That's the number one piece of advice. I'm going to have to really resist my <laughs> tendency to always try to be the alpha male in every situation, but I'm going to remember that. No, I love that conversation, and I could have probably asked 100 more questions. That's why mm. I asked that question at the end about um, about whether they're escrow services to prove payment. But I think the fact that there are a million more questions we could have asked really speaks to exactly what you said at the very beginning that this is probably the most complicated transaction you can imagine. Mm. And every little bit from proving the payment to figuring out who the hostage uh, expert negotiator really works for, every single aspect just seems so tricky and hard to manage. 
Yeah, um, I think I'm going to develop maybe a bit of a specialty in kidnapping academic research, because I really find this fascinating. And I'm surprised that more economists don't look at this as a sort of microcosm of all the big issues that we so often find in behavioral finance and beyond. Um, But it's definitely one that I think can be further explored. I think that last point, too, about how in movies, kidnapping always seems like you know, these the negotiation doesn't seem to chaotic. have any process. Yeah. It seems completely chaotic. It usually always falls apart at the end. Someone backtracks at the last second and then and the idea that in real life that it's a very emotionally fraught process, but that it also is predictable, usually ends in about a week, that from the beginning the expert has a good sense of how much <laughs> it'll cost. It probably won't destroy the family's finances is so fascinating that this incredibly complicated transaction through markets and through expertise can actually be made kind of uh, predictable from the very start. Should someone write the movie about the insurance <laughs> specialist parachuting in, having really disciplined negotiations, talking about escrow services, making estimates of the ransom? <laughs> I'm imagining. Uh, I'm imagining Steve Carell. And him sort of coming in with a slightly ill-fitting suit and him, uh, you know, something something along that and him trying to be like this very nerdy uh, insurance (laughs) approach and everyone else freaking out and him calming everyone's nerves. I think it has to be a comedy. I would totally watch that. (laughs) Me too. All right. um, That is it for this episode of Odd Lots and for our series on markets and crime. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can find me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart.